1: May, 1572. For ten violent years, the wars of religion have raged across France. But now, peace has been brokered and a royal wedding has been negotiated. It is a marriage that could reunite France at last. And an invitation has arrived for Minou Joubert and her family to attend this historic wedding in Paris. Minot Joubert is the protagonist of Kate Moss's latest novel, The City of Tears, which comes out in paperback this month. And listeners to this podcast will know that August 1572, the time of the wedding, was not a good time for a Huguenot family to visit Paris. Operating on both a vast, epic scale across 16th century Europe and also very much telling the intimate, deeply personal story of one family, This historical thriller is a fascinating way into the religious differences cleaving Europe in the 1570s. Kate Moss, OBE, is an internationally best-selling novelist, playwright and non-fiction writer. Her books have been translated into 38 languages and published in 40 countries. She's the author of eight novels and short story collections you'll almost certainly have heard of and probably read her trilogy of novels that begins with Labyrinth and is set in Languedoc in the 13th century, exploring the persecution of the Cathars. The City of Tears is the second book in a series of novels that start with the French wars of religion. The first was The Burning Chambers, which was a Sunday Times number one bestseller. Kate is also the founder director of the Women's Prize for Fiction, which means that she devotes as much time to furthering the careers of other writers as to her own work. As this and her novels suggest, she's an immensely generous, lovely and creative person, and it is a great delight to welcome her onto the podcast. Kate, it is an absolute joy to see you. And I want to say congratulations on the City of Tears. I have my two copies, actually. I've got my signed limited edition and my new paperback copy. It's a triumph. I read, what is it, 540 pages. In a couple of nights, because it's that sort of book. People always say hard to put down, but it's genuinely true in this case. And it was so nice also to read the sequel to The Burning Chambers, because I've read that a few years back. So let's talk about this book and let's set the scene, I suppose. This is the second in a sequence of novels set against the backdrop of three centuries of history, we're told, from 16th century France and Amsterdam through to 19th century Southern Africa. The first volume was The Burning Chambers, and I urge people to read both it and The City
2: of Tears. But if they wanted to start with The City of Tears, what's the recap they need? Thank you, Susie. I haven't even seen a paperback copy, so you holding one up, that was rather lovely. So The City of Tears, I worked really, really hard to make sure that all of the books can be read on their own. If you have read them all, you will get more from it, obviously, because you will know the ins and outs. But the city of Tears starts in 1572, where the family that we met in the burning chambers, the Joubert family, is all gathered in their castle down in Puyvesque, in the southwest of France, to make a decision as a family. Should they or should they not go to the royal wedding in Paris? (laughs) Very straightforward, you know, set up scene. Now... Anybody who knows anything about the wars of religion in France will know that the most notorious engagement was the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which came after 10 years of very bitter religious civil war, essentially. And the whole of the Huguenot leadership was pretty much wiped out and it changed the course of the war, and I would say changed French history. But, of course, they don't know that because it hasn't happened yet. So it starts there, and it's the family that we know and the enemies of theirs that we know. We realise that those enemies are still there, there is something happening. There's quite a big dramatic event very early on. But some of the family do go to Paris. And so they arrive in Paris in August 1572. And the joy, and you and I would feel the same about this, is that the wedding is supposed to be, and indeed it does happen, on the 18th of August, between the Protestant Huguenot, Henry of Navarre, who's the King of Navarre, and the Catholic Marguerite de Valois, who was the daughter of Catherine de' Medici, and sister to the King. And the wedding has been brokered by these two very powerful women, Catherine de' Medici and Jeanne d'Albret, who was the Queen of Navarre. But she has died in mysterious circumstances, some believe poisoned by Catherine de' Medici, but the wedding is still going to go ahead. And it's very straightforward. If these two gilded youths can be brought together, then maybe 10 years of war will stop. And of course, what happens next is part of the heart and the meat of the story.
1: So you're setting your story against this complex religious background of the Reformation, of the French wars of religion.
2: Why did you choose to situate yourself in this period? Well, it's exactly the right question, but it's not how I write at all. So I never start with the period of history or even the characters. For me, it's always place.
1: That makes so much sense. That yeah.
2: Sense. <laughs> no, so I would never think, well, do you know, I quite fancy the year 1912 and therefore I'm going to find a story for me. It's always for me about being somewhere. And then hearing what I think of as the whispering in the landscape and the sense that here is somewhere that I can tell a story. So with the City of Tears, even though obviously it is partly in Paris and partly in Chartres and the southwest of France, the bulk of the story is in the City of Tears itself, which is Amsterdam. Now, that is a place that I've gone to a lot as an author and love and have always loved and have always felt there was a story for me, but had never found it. And then starting to write this big series of books inspired by the wars of religion in France, I realised that, of course, this was the moment, that this was the time that I was going to get to know Amsterdam. And this was the moment I was going to write about. And what was so fascinating about it was that when I was there, I was given a writer's fellowship by the Dutch Literature Foundation. And I was there for a month in 2019. And it was fabulous to be there and very unusual as a parent and a carer to have that time on my own. I was quite lonely, actually. I found it quite odd to not have people at the end of the day. But what I discovered was that in every country, there are periods of history that everybody knows and other periods of history that are rather lost. So when I started to talk to my Dutch friends about the key moments that I needed to learn about, which in Amsterdam was 1578, this thing called the Alteration, which was when Amsterdam went from being a Catholic city to being a Protestant city in the space of an afternoon. And exceptionally, nobody died. I mean, it's almost the only engagement in all the wars of religion where nobody died. But when I would ask my Dutch friends, they said, we don't know what you're talking about. Because in the same way, bearing in mind the name of your podcast, everybody in England in particular is taught about the Tudors, But often people know nothing about the Stuarts and the Civil War. And, you know, they know Romans, Tudors, First World War. In Amsterdam and in Holland and Netherlands in general, it turned out that everybody knows the Golden Age. So that was a huge challenge. But it came out of wanting to put Amsterdam on the page. And the novel starts in Amsterdam, Waterways, the Venice of the North. And that's it for me. It's place first, history second, made up people, come third. That does make so much sense because one of the things I
1: noted in reading this is that you really create a vivid sense of place, your wonderful description
2: of 16th century Paris or of Amsterdam. And I wanted to say, how do you do this? It's about standing in a place and listening. It's like being a detective or being an archaeologist. You're looking for the story beneath the story you can see. So when I stand in Amsterdam, which was tiny in 1578... I start to walk and I walk and I walk and I walk and realise that the big canals that we think of is Amsterdam. You learn that Singel, which is the first of those big ones, was the moat. And then you think, oh... God, it must have been so small. And then, of course, you seek out the places that were there then. So I started in Buscheinhof, which I can never say right, but it was a kind of non-closed, non-religious order, even though it was a religious order of nuns, right in the heart of the city. And my flat, when I was living there and researching, I could see the garden from my window. So then you go and stand there and you strip away the 17th century buildings that were there after Amsterdam's big fires. And then you look at the church and you think, yes, but that church was here. So everything is about, rather than painting a picture, is actually taking away the layers like an old master to see the painting that's underneath. And once I have a sense of the physical space of a city or a place or a castle, then I know how to fill it with a story because it's very straightforward. Paris in 1572, you could walk from one side of Paris to the other in 20 minutes. So it's about that and putting that on the page for readers so they understand the confinement of what Paris was essentially still a medieval city. That gives us a really helpful sense of your process as well in terms of
1: research, its place and then historical detail. And then your invented characters. Let's talk a bit about how you research things. I'd be fascinated to hear how you do
2: that. Well, I always say this, you know, that I'm not a historian. I am someone who loves history, reading history. And I'm curious about the people that we all might have been in the past. So at the heart of my historical fiction is always the question, what would I have done? None of the characters are me. They're very much not me, actually. They're imagined people, because for me, I need them to be utterly out of my imagination to give them wings, I suppose. But in terms of the research, I'm always looking for the everyday details. So much of recorded history has been about a very narrow band of experience. It's been very, very male. It's been extremely privileged. These things are changing. But when you go back to try to find out what, a, for want of a better word, an ordinary woman might have been like, you realise that all the paintings that you see of the 16th century, you're seeing mostly court clothes. So you're seeing people not just in their Sunday best, but the clothes that they would go out to open Parliament. Well, obviously not open Parliament in the 16th century, but that sort of thing. So the minute you start to think of it in those terms, you think, okay. so what would a real woman walking around the streets of Paris be wearing on a day-to-day basis? And for me, it's about going into the archives and reading letters, reading wills. Wills are terribly revealing. When you see that people have left a bag of salt or a pair of shoes, it helps you the value of something then and how special it might have been or different it might have been. I do spend a lot of time in art galleries and museums looking at the things that the people I'm writing about might have seen. So if you're in Toulouse, for example, if you go into the Basilica, the Basilica was there. So my characters could see what I'm now looking at. So how would that be changed? I read all the history I can lay my hands on. I listen to music that would have been played at the time. I try to find out the sorts of food that people would be eating at the time, and what would they drink and when they would do it. So if you like, it's about putting together a day-to-day world. Because once I have the day-to-day world, then actually the big stuff is easy. You know, the big moments of history, they're there already. You know, when I'm writing about St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, there are many, many paintings, some contemporaneous, others interpretations from hundreds of years later. But in terms of what people were wearing or what they looked like, those people, that's clear in my mind. But I need to know what the ordinary person in the street is doing, because all of my stories are set against the backdrop of real history, but they are the stories of people like us. They are not the stories of the queens, and that's very important to me.
1: Yes, so you do include people who were historical. We've got Catherine de' Medici, who you describe as monstrous, which made me laugh out loud. Marguerite de Valois, Henri, Duke of Guise, Admiral Coligny, all these people. How do you decide how many real people, as it were, to include? And how do you set about their
2: characterisation? I don't really like writing real people. I think there is a great deal of danger in historical fiction even when it's done better than anything. When we put our imagined 21st century or 20th century ideas into the mouths of people from the 16th century, we run the danger of distorting history. And if history is about a dialogue between us and them, now and then, then it can be a very risky business, as we know, because history is often used to justify decisions being made in our name at the moment. So if you're saying, well, women have never done this, for example... And people go, well, therefore, that justifies continuing to have a bias against women now. But then you need to say, but that's not true. Of course, women were there doing these things. So I feel quite strongly about that. But within this particular part of my story, there are very huge characters who are very well documented. And that is, for me, what made the difference, that the descriptions of Marguerite de Valois' wedding dress and the way that she walked on a golden platform from the Louvre Palace to where she was being married in Notre Dame, they come from her writings. And that was quite important to me, to see if I could get the words of the women of the past in there. Jeanne d'Albret was an extraordinary writer. Therefore, I have a sense of who they were from their own mouths. And that mattered quite a lot. There are scenes with certainly Henry of Guise and a scene between Catherine de Medici and her daughter, which I have imagined. And that is based on what happened, where I think the culpability for the massacre lay and all of the other writings that I have been able to read. So I've not read anything written by Henry of Guise, but I've read a lot from Marguerite de Valois and others and Coligny and all of these people about what Guise was like at the time i do as little of it as I can get away with. But I think in something as big as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which is the turning point, in my opinion, of the wars of religion, that could have been the end of it, but instead it continued to 1594. And of course it will be Henry of Navarre, who will be crowned eventually King of France, and he will be crowned in Chartres Cathedral because the north of France, Reims, where all the French kings normally were crowned, was still in Catholic hands, and he will convert for the second time in order to take the crown so if the wedding had worked millions of people would have not died or been displaced or been exiled so i felt they've got to be on the page just a bit i really take your point about not wanting to distort
1: the people who've actually lived and i'm struck by the sort of immense amount of research that you're doing And yet, how lightly that is worn. And your novels are gripping, in part because they're written in simple, and I do not mean simplistic, but simple language, which makes them immensely readable. However, do you achieve that when you're dealing with such complicated subjects?
2: Well, thank you. Every single work of art, whatever it is, is artificial by definition. So if we actually wrote down, unless you're Samuel Beckett, if you actually wrote down how people speak... It's just boring on the page because people are and and they repeat themselves and they don't have beautifully modulated sentences and cadences. So the trick that I've always used is I have a little bit of French and indeed Occitan, which is the dialect and language down in my part of France, as I think of it, the Southwest. I don't do what I'm sure historians would hate me for saying, but what I always think of as Blackadder. So we don't have a forsooth, my lord, you know, you don't try to out Shakespeare, Shakespeare. But at the same time, try to pay some attention to a kind of structure in sentences that will make it feel not contemporary. So you want it to be clear and readable and enjoyable, and no reader should be thinking, oh, she's written that sentence well. They should be thinking, what's going to happen next? I write adventure stories, and that's my purpose, to entertain. But do I want to respect the sense of time and place Absolutely. Do I want to respect real history and the facts as we know them? Absolutely. So that's always the challenge in historical fiction that what editors call the info drop, you know, you turn over a page and then you have 14 pages describing, you know, when the monastery was built. Unless it matters when the monastery was built, we don't need 14 pages about it. It's very hard, as you know, Susie, to let go of research. In a way, you want to share it because it's so fascinating and you can't share it all. So It's that really and I think that I just try to always keep the drama forefront because in the end people will read the City of Tears because they will want to know that at that moment, that evening St Bartholomew's Eve in Paris in August 1572, my family, the Joubert family, has their own family tragedy going on involving the loss of a child. I won't say any more than that but what matters is that the reader is going, what are they going to do? Are they going to leave without them they shouldn't be thinking well I had no idea quite so many people died on that street (laughs) you know I have failed if they're thinking like that so it's about knowing your research and knowing your period of history well enough in a funny sort of way to be able to let it go
1: Well, there's lots of things I want to ask you out of that. I suppose the first thing would be to say that we do have this backdrop of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre and I felt that you wrote about the horrors with a light touch and by that I don't mean that you trivialise it but that you don't glory in atrocity, which I certainly
2: appreciated. I take writing violence very seriously. I think that whenever it is there to titillate, it should go. But I think it's also important, it pertains you know, to the point about Distorting the past if we're not careful as historical novelists is that unless I can convey the genuine savagery of something Then how can a reader make the assessment of whether one of my characters is acting bravely or selfishly or foolishly? If you know that if you were caught the sort of punishments that might be meted out to you, the fact you might be put in an oubliette, you know, one of those prisons under the streets of Paris and other cities where people were quite literally thrown into holes and forgotten about, sometimes for years upon end. If you think you don't know, then the assessment about whether my lead character is doing the right thing is very hard. So it's about courage and about applauding the courage of the people of the past and what it must have taken to stand up against this kind of thing. And it's the same with any period of history. I've written about the Second World War and the women's resistance in Kakasson and it's that thing that it would be easier to pretend you didn't know and to look away. So I've got to show people what would happen if they don't look away. So I use violence very, very sparingly. I tend to quite often leave markers in the novel and save up and do a whole load of that kind of writing in one go because I find that it's poisoning. It's horrible to write these things. And of course, a little bit of it goes a long way. That's the other thing. You don't need a lot of it to make the point. So I take it very seriously about how to describe it. But there's one moment when there's quite a graphic murder. But one of my lead characters, who is a child at the time, is witnessing it. And it felt important that she saw it happen. Because everything about her character, in a way, is influenced by the fact of having seen that. She ceased to become a child at that moment and learnt that there was always a negotiation. You could save yourself by talking. You might not feel morally right about that, but there was a negotiation. So without showing that moment, then a lot of what is about the complexity of characterisation, you lose.
0: Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds.
1: Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say. Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries.
2: This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell,
1: anywhere in the world. We've got the big names.
0: It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of
2: forever rising from the dead and from destruction.
0: We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to The
1: Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word.
0: wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit.
1: One powerful theme that returns in the book is that of orphans, or perhaps more precisely, children separated from their parents, children with unknown origins, forgotten pasts. What made that such an important part of your storytelling?
2: Yeah, that's a lovely question actually. I think it's partly because reading a lot of history and writing, well all my fiction really is historical in one way or another, is there are two things. Firstly, understanding that the idealisation of childhood and the idea of a child being completely different and needing different sorts of nurturing and looking after is relatively modern on the scale of things. The idea, you know, in a way, that children were little adults and children quite often ascended to the throne at the age of nine in the most corrupt times of the Catholic Church. There were bishops that were two. So this idea of children needing to be protected and looked after and they're not capable of making decisions, this is quite a modern thing. But also because at the heart of my stories, it's about the unheard and underheard stories of women that have been left out of the history books. One of the things that you can't help but notice is that... Girls that are orphaned or have no mother in particular often have more agency because they are not being kept in a domestic environment, if you like. They're not being told women can't do this because if they don't do it, then they'll all starve. So it's weird because I have children and it's one of the great joys of my life being a mother and I will really enjoy soon, I hope, being a grandmother and I had a very close relationship with my mother and I'm a carer for my mother-in-law, so it's very odd But within my fiction, therefore, often I write women without mothers because they have had to step outside of a prescribed path and that often has been liberating for them. And it's the same question if you are a parent or a carer. It's the biggest nightmare, isn't it? What if something happened to my child? This is a lost child story at the heart of it and that idea that you would never quite stop thinking that they might be out there to be found. And how would that affect everything about your life going forward? So a lot of us who are novelists, you know, we ask ourselves questions through our fiction. (laughs) Don't necessarily get any answers, but you do ask the questions.
1: Yes, I mean, that is the emotional heart of the novel, I suppose, at that moment. And it's the one that I found very moving and was kind of railing against the decisions that were being made. And it became clear to me how very difficult it would have been to find people when they were missing in the sort of age before mass communication. You know, it's not like you can look them up on the internet or
2: have phones or anything. That is the most extraordinary thing. And most of us, if we're lucky enough to live in a peaceful place and a peaceful time with relative freedoms and all of these things, we don't have any idea of what that would be like. But you read any novel about war or mass displacement or even just watching on the news when a bomb goes off and nobody knows. And now we do have, as you say, communications, and they make all the difference. But then they absolutely didn't at all. And so I just thought of all those people, you know, your beloved brother or your beloved sister or your child or your husband or your wife or your aunt or whoever it was, you might never know what had happened to them. And on that night, so many people died in Paris. Estimates, of course, vary wildly. But, you know, they tend to go between about 3,000 people and about 5,000 people with 10,000 people being murdered in copycat massacres in 12 other French cities in the two weeks after the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And you just think of all those unclaimed people and all those people who spent the rest of their lives with this ache of unknowing. And that's a very powerful and corrosive emotion, obviously. And I wanted to ask the question, could Minou and her family, could they make a life for themselves in Amsterdam? would it ever go away? And of course, the answer is no, it never does go away.
1: Do you think that the contemporary echoes, and by which I mean today's echoes of these stories, are influencing you as well? Because you're thinking here about the great displacement of peoples, the creation of refugees. You note in your introduction that the word refugee is actually associated with the Huguenots. And this, of course, speaks to our age as well as to the
2: 16th century. Do you think that influences your writing? It doesn't influence my writing or my decisions at all, in that historical fiction only works if it is absolutely, and with as much integrity as the author can manage, set in the place and time in which it's set. There are many attitudes, particularly towards women, that you and I would find pretty repugnant, but that is what people thought. So you can't put your 21st century eyes on this. If you want to create the world, you've got to create the world that they would know. One of the biggest areas of this, I would say, is about the existence of God and religion, for example, that it just was everywhere, like air. There were one or two people who might have said, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, but basically the whole of this society, God was a given, for example. Now, this is hard, certainly speaking in Britain today, which is not a country that is defined by religious state or religious belief. To imagine that, it's not something that people just did on a Sunday. So things like that, you have to be very, very careful. But do I think that people bring their views and what they know to the reading of the book? Yes, I do. So when I first had the idea for the series, I was in Franschuk in 2010. And the great, and I don't use it in terms of it being a good thing, displacement of the 21st century had not really started in the way that it subsequently has. So we weren't living in a time where people talked about refugees or where people had the right to settle if they couldn't live in the countries they were in. Now it is something that's on the news every single day. That wasn't the case when I started researching the books. It was a very odd experience publishing the first one in 2018, The Burning Chambers, because I started to say something I've said before about, you know, of course, we never know we're living through history. And then I had to stop because actually we do know we're living through history now. So I think readers bring all of those things to the book and my job as a historical novelist is to leave enough white space so that when i publish the book i put it between you and me and the book lives in that space between us so you bring your own self and your reading and what you know to the book in the same way that i put my own emotions and all of these things into the book but the history has to be of the time I think the minute you set out to write a parable or an allegory, you haven't written a novel, you're writing a political treatise.
1: Let's talk a bit more about the religious faith because there's some interesting ideas that come out for me, my reading of it anyway. So one nice contrast that the novel makes clear is that on the one hand, you've got for some religious beliefs that can motivate them into murder or martyrdom. And on the other hand, you've got division lines of faith running between families. So we've got this simultaneously fierce intolerance and also accommodation. And the other question is that given that we've got some people who are willing to die or kill for their faith, I felt that your protagonists are sort of markedly sceptical. And I wondered if that was something to do with what you've alluded to, the challenge of creating characters with whom people perhaps can empathise or perhaps who are likeable in the past when their values might differ
2: so much from the present. Was that part of your decision making? Probably subconsciously so. But it's not how I create characters. I never really decide what they're going to think. I decide what they're going to do as part of the writing. So with Minou Joubert, I know the sort of woman she is. I know what the arc of real history is behind her. I didn't know that it was going to be a lost child story till I was in Paris. I knew that there would need to be a very intense personal drama that would actually supersede the historical drama that was going on behind, because at the time of those things, you're not part of the historical drama. All you know is, we are in danger, we must get away. So with a decision about how whose faith is going to show itself or not. It's really just that she naturally develops it herself in the same way that we know now, having said I don't look at the current day, I think, oddly, the way to try to understand this particular Huguenot-Catholic conflict in the 16th century within families is to look at Brexit because we all know within families that this has led people to not speak to each other again. You just replace that with faith And it's exactly the same thing. So some people will feel that loyalty to the family is better to just not talk about it because then the family stays intact. Others will be prepared to go to the wall to fight for something. And obviously we all maybe have different views on this as well. But I would say that I think Brexit is an act of self-harm and you can see that it is doing damage empirically in all sorts of ways. But the people who believe in it still believe in it regardless of the evidence. Now, the minute you move that across to faith, that becomes very illuminating. So everybody in France, of course, can see that France is being ruined by this. The cost of war is immense, as you know. The cost in terms of lack of skills and the people being lost to the country in terms of the Huguenots taking their lace-making and their engineering and their bookbinding out of the country. So almost everything about this religious civil war was destroying France's prosperity, but yet they didn't stop because they would rather die than go down. Minou is a practical woman. Does she believe in God? Yes. Does she believe in all the bloodshed and the chaos that's coming from the way that it's being done? No. So she's, if you like, moderate. She believes moderately in religion. She doesn't want to be a martyr. You read the writings of Anne Askew at the time, one extraordinary woman, an extraordinary writer, her examinations are one of the great texts, I would say, of this time. Now, it was more important to her to die than to recant. Minu is not that person. And I would suggest that most people are not that person. Most people want a quiet life. They want to live healthily and well and be able to care for the people they like. They want to worship in the way they want to, but they don't need to kill everybody else who doesn't agree with them. So it's that. It's always about the manipulation of crowds. But Mina could have, as I was writing her, she might have become more religious she still might, Susie. You'll have to see what happens in book three. But I let the character tell me who they are in that way.
1: This is such a mystical thing for me as a historian to hear.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I love hearing
1: it, but it sounds like magic. The other thing to say, I suppose, about religion is that the setting of your narrative pivots on the contrasting responses to toleration that are adopted in Paris, i.e. not at all, and Amsterdam, as you talked about before, with the altercation of 1578. And I got the impression that these radically different outcomes and how they became outcomes, that movement through chronological
2: linear time, fascinated you. It absolutely did. You look at the two pivotal moments, and the story of the alteration in Amsterdam in May 1578 is utterly extraordinary. Basically, all of Europe is riven by religious wars. And Catholic Spain has a big old foothold in the lowlands. And in the end, the division will be the Catholic bit of it will become Belgium and the Protestant bit will become the Netherlands. This is very, very in a nutshell kind of thing. So there's a great deal of fighting. It's what's called the 60 Years' War is happening in the Netherlands, and William of Orange. This is difficult because all of them are called William of Orange, pretty much. So you lose track of which one you're talking about. So not the one that comes over and takes over in the UK, obviously, but we're talking about the 16th century. And little by little, the Calvinists really, as they are, slightly different from the Huguenots, but they're all Protestants, if we think of it in those terms, are making great inroads. There's been a lot of savagery from the Spanish forces. The Catholics are seen as barbarians. And little by little, a kind of swathe of Protestantism is moving down the Netherlands. And in the end, you are left kind of with Amsterdam as a Catholic island in the middle of this. And Amsterdam had been ruled by the burghers for 40 years, Catholic burghers. And yet, on the afternoon of the 26th of May, the Calvinist forces, essentially, storm the Stadthaus, the council chamber and essentially say, you lot, you need to go now. And they are escorted down to barges, waiting to take them out to ships on the sea that is outside of Amsterdam, the I, spelt I-J, and off they all go. And a few of the very hated Greyfriars are duffed up, so there is some bloodshed, but nobody dies. After 40 years, nobody dies. And I just had to get to the bottom of this because it is inexplicable in this very savage period of history that that should happen. You know, we've got all of the English history. We know what's going on. We know what's going on in Spain. We know what's going on in Holy Roman Empire. We know all of these things, but yet. And I asked my Dutch friends, not historians, but my friends in Amsterdam and Utrecht. And they said, well, the thing is that religion would not be more important than trade. And I said, okay, tell me more about that. He said, this is what we would now call a middle-class trading city. They're not going to destroy their trade for the sake of something. They want power. The Protestants think the Catholics corrupt. They want not to be in hock to Rome. There are all sorts of reasons, but at the bottom of it, this is a trading nation. And what I also love is we know about the golden age in the Netherlands, which is coming 100 years later. And partly, why does it happen? It happens because Amsterdam and the Netherlands took the refugees in. They massively swelled their population. They let all the Huguenots come. It was one of the biggest places. And there, they brought their skills with them and helped build a tiny nation a century later into a world superpower because they let the refugees in. And obviously, I'm an optimist, and obviously, I'm always... All things must be lovely in the garden, but... I just love that because it's like, yeah, you do the right thing that you reach out your hand to somebody in need and bam, you know, you transform your country. Now, we're not going to get caught up into colonisation and the Dutch East India Company and any of those things. But that at the bottom of it. The Huguenots are at the bottom of that as well. So for me, all of these things about history and writing about the real history and discovering these pivotal moments is about... wow, what happened next? You know, it's just telling a story.
1: (laughs) Did it differ as an experience, or has it differed as an experience, writing these novels by comparison to writing the Labyrinth trilogy, so partly in the same region of France, not Amsterdam, but two centuries earlier?
2: Yes, it has, because each of the books is set in a different place. People listening who've read any of my other fiction will know that Chartres is a place that I've written about before, particularly in Labyrinth. And I did want to go back to Chartres because I knew that Henry would be crowned there in 1594. So therefore, I thought, I'm going to enjoy revisiting Chartres. You know, I've been there in the medieval period and I've been there in the contemporary period. So I don't know about it there. With Carcassonne, we have spent several months every year there for 32 years. So I know the streets of Carcassonne like the back of my hand, as the old shabby phrase goes. I don't know Amsterdam like the back of my hand. I don't know Franchouk in South Africa like the back of my hand. I know Paris well, but it's not my city in the same sort of way. So it has meant that with each of the new books, and the third book that I'm just about to start writing is set partly in the Canary Islands and partly on the sea. And that's going to be a challenge for me because I like a wood You know, I like big, epic landscapes. So a confined landscape of a ship is going to be a very different type of writing challenge. So that has made it quite different in terms of the emotional thread of the story, the way that in the end it's about what does this character want? Why can't she have it? Who is stopping her having it? What are the consequences going to be? The emotional heart of writing a novel, that isn't any different. But the placing, the getting to know a new place has been... Really wonderful, actually. Really wonderful. And the timing, of course, has been not fortuitous because none of us would have wanted any of this to happen. But, of course, I haven't been able to travel at all. Nobody has. So I've been writing in my mind, but entirely at my desk in Sussex. I went to Carcassonne in October and that was the first time I'd been there for 16 months. And that's the longest in 32 years that I've not been there. And, of course, it was wonderful to be back. But it was interesting to not have that physicality of place, which I rely on so much as my inspiration, you know, when I was sitting here writing.
1: Yes, I miss France very much. That's another point. But actually, no, it is related, actually, because now that you have written these brilliant books, Labyrinth, of course, was extraordinarily successful. And even the first in this series was a Sunday Times number one bestseller it makes it possible, I suppose, to do the sorts of historical novels that perhaps there might have been resistance to. I guess what I'm wondering was the resistance. I've always found it impossible to get any TV programmes about French history commissioned if they don't involve Marie Antoinette or possibly Louis XIV at a push.
2: But you've done it. Well, I think you're right. I think that there is less interest in historical France than you'd imagined. And I think the reason that my readers have been so wonderful and supportive is because they don't think they're reading French history. They're reading a love letter to Carcassonne or a love letter to Amsterdam. And that's why I stress so much that my inspiration comes from place, because that, I think, is what people are connecting to. I still get letters all the time from people saying, I read Labyrinth, I read The Burning Chambers, it made me go to Carcassonne, which I love. And then, of course, I become terribly protective and want to say, did you like it? know, I want them to like it, and all of these kind of things. So there is a bias against French history. And I think sometimes people forget that the Tudors were our lot. That's that story. And that these things were happening at the same time in another country, and they don't care about the Tudors. <laughs> they care about their people. Well, this is part of, you know, my Women in History campaign, and the book that I've been writing at the moment, is that one or two people are taken to represent the whole. So... You can have a French woman, but it does have to be Marie Antoinette. You know, you can't have anybody else. And I think we must resist that, because that plays into the narrative of the one exceptional woman, and that she was the only one. Whereas we know that lots and lots and lots of people were there. At one point in The City of
1: Tears, you talk about Minu keeping a journal, and this awareness that people in the future might have few accounts of the voices of ordinary women. And you've just mentioned that you've been working on a book tell us about this next book as well
2: well the next book is called warrior queens to quiet revolutionaries it's come out of my global women in history campaign and when i was publishing the city of tears in hardback it had already been delayed because of the pandemic and we delayed it unfortunately to january the deepest lockdown that ever happened so i never saw the book in a bookshop because it came out and it never was in a window, it was never on the shelf, you know, it was the most bizarre experience. So I wanted to do something celebratory. So I simply put out a call on social media. And then I asked various reputable people and friends that I knew to name one woman in history they wanted to celebrate or they thought should be better known. And it was that it was just a bit of fun, if you like. But of course, partly because we were all in lockdown, it was just one of those things I had thousands of nominations thousands of people suggesting women lots of them well known and many of them I'd never heard of and that was a joyous experience and out of that I started to think you know this is just a very interesting discussion about how easily women disappear from the history books. So asking the questions about who writes history, who gets to decide what matters, that phrase, the silence in the archives. If people don't put the documents in in the first place, then they're not there to be found, are they? You know. So the book is that really. It is a celebration of extraordinary women divided by category rather than by period of history because I felt that that was very interesting. You know, when were the first female doctors? Well, were they in Edinburgh in 1860? Probably not. You know, it's about common sense and also about being able to say every time somebody says, well, there's never been any dot, 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 women composers say, you'd be able to hold up the book and go, well, I beg to differ. There have been these. But running alongside that, it is partly a family memoir because I discovered really very recently that my great-grandmother was actually a well-known Victorian novelist who, when her most famous novel, The Vicar of Langthwaite, came out in 1893, the Prime Minister Gladstone actually wrote about it, saying it's a great joy to have, you know. But yet, all of her books are out of print. I could find virtually no reference to her at all anywhere, on any archives, research, you know, Wikipedia, any of these places you might go, in lockdown in particular. And so that kind of forms the spine of it: is How can it happen that somebody even really very well-known in their day vanishes from the record and what is this about legacy and protecting women's legacy and the subtitle of the book is how women also built the world so it's not about saying let's ignore all these horrible men who are stealing our opportunities because that's daft it's about saying let's get a bigger table and all the chairs so that we tell the real story and of course you extrapolate that out to people of color people from different social backgrounds all of the voices that have not been heard but it was very fascinating doing all this research into my own family history and realizing that, you know, nobody had talked about it, I discovered one huge family secret, which was a real shock to discover. But I think in the context of this conversation, the most extraordinary thing is you will have heard me talk, Susie, about the Burning Chambers series, and that it's just, you know, it came from being in Franschuk and all the reasons I liked it. And I've said very confidently all the time that I have no Huguenot heritage, and I discovered in the last month that I did. So <laughs> it actually turned out that my great-grandmother's mother and grandmother were Huguenot refugees. I learned this a month ago. So I've written two books saying confidently I have no Huguenot heritage. But it turns out that the Lepard family came from France. And I haven't been able to look into that, obviously, now. But you would not be surprised to know I'm now thinking, "Ah, can I somehow discover? Because they weren't refugees in the first wave at all. They were slightly later. They came across in the 18th century. And that's never been my period of history. So I have fewer frames of reference for that. But it's just the most wonderful thing about research, as you know. It's those moments when everything changes.
1: So interesting as well that you have a great-grandmother who was a novelist And you have ancestors who were Huguenot. And you are a novelist who has written books about the Huguenots. Amazing how these
2: things come out. I know. It's completely incredible. And what I hope about the non-fiction book, it comes out in October and it is a celebration. It comes out of years of doing historical research about women's lives. Because as you know, that's at the heart of all my fiction. But the wonderful thing, for example, I'll give you one daft fact. That a woman in America in the 1880s said presumably after Christmas or something, or possibly Thanksgiving, it being America. If nobody else is going to invent a dishwashing machine, I shall do it myself. That woman was Josephine Cochrane. She created a machine in the shed of her garden. She patented it, made her own engineering company, which was Cochrane Garris, Garris being her maiden name. And that was it. And I find that a piece of joyous news that the woman invented the dishwasher. And I think nobody's surprised by that.
1: (laughs) Not at all. Well, we will look forward to that book in October. And meanwhile, The City of Tears is out this month in paperback. And it's a glorious read. It's a glorious paperback. And everyone listening should pick up a copy. Kate, thank you so much for joining me. This has literally been not just The Tudors. And it's been really fun to talk about this period, but also about your approach to writing fiction set in the period. So thank you for all your insights.
2: It's been a pleasure, Susie. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – A house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. A house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.